Saturday, January 21st, uh, 2017. It was kind of a big day. I don't know if you're racking your brain to try and remember what was going on that day, but uh, uh, that was a day... Um, well, at that point, there were, there were many, many in uh, town that were still, still basking in the glow of a Cubs World Series victory the, uh, the prior, prior October. Um, and it was pointed out to me today that I'm wearing a cubby blue shirt. I just need to clear up the confusion. This is a regular blue shirt, so I, I see how you might accidentally think that. But, uh, so I was not one basking in the glow of that championship at that point, but... Uh, but the, that lengthy 108-year World Series drought had just been broken the previous October. Um, and, and kind of an interesting side note, I'll still read obituaries today that, that reference that championship as kind of a high point for, for the, the lives of Cub fans. And so I guess, you know, a, a, as a Cardinal fan who, who cheers for a team that wins the World Series about every decade or so, I just won't know what that's like probably. But... Uh, You'll have to forgive me there, but that, that stands out to me a little bit, I guess. But anyway, so, so that, that back to that day in January in 2017. So the previous World Series, it, it, it was a, a hard-fought one. It was filled with ups and downs, lots of drama, contributions from players on both sides. And going into that final game, Game 7, there really was not one player that had stood out, right, that was going to win the MVP. And so it just kind of had this feeling that whoever whoever made the winning play for Game 7 would probably win the MVP of the World Series. And wouldn't you know it, it was Eureka's own hometown boy, Ben Zobrist, that got that hit in the 10th inning that won the World Series, broke up that 108-year drought. And then, you know, as things continued, of course, a few days later, there was the the uh, uh, parade in Chicago, that victory parade that drew an estimated 5 million people. That still boggles my mind. It's been said that it was the seventh largest gathering in world history. Crazy <laughs> to think about that. But, uh, but here in, in small town Eureka, we were waiting for something else, weren't we? I mean, we were, we were waiting in great anticipation for that day when Ben would come back to town and we could have our own celebration with him as a community. And so, of course, on January 21st, 2017, we got that chance. Ben came back into town, and, and a rally was held. I'm sure anybody go to the rally that was, that was held at the college, right? Only one? Come. Wow. Well, somebody was there. Um, so that rally was held, right? Congratulations were given. Um, a, a road was renamed Honorary Ben Zobrist Way, which in a twist of irony, I've got to drive on it multiple times every day. <laughs> but there, there was celebration, right? The, this, this hometown hero had come back. He'd, he'd returned home, and it was with all the pomp and circumstance that, uh, that you might expect in that type of situation. Now, now Ben is... is certainly not the last small-town kid who's, who's going to do something noteworthy in the world and, and then return, to return home to a hero's welcome. Um, and he certainly wasn't the first to have that kind of experience either. And I think there's, I think there's a connection there when we, we think about what we will be studying today in Luke chapter 4. Jesus had a similar experience in his own life. 
And so as we think back to that day in January 2017, I, I think it can give us a unique perspective on the context surrounding a visit that Jesus made to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, now I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 4 with me, and, and, and just kind of a note about the timing of this story. So Luke records this story as well as Matthew and Mark in their Gospels. Matthew and Mark, however, place the story later in Jesus' ministry, about a year into Jesus' ministry. For Luke, if you remember last week, we just studied the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. So in the chronological order of things, Jesus' ministry is just getting started. So the question is, why does Luke take this event and bring it forward? Why does he place it where he does in his gospel, especially when compared to Matthew and Mark? And, and I would argue that, that what Luke is doing here is he's taking a story with a certain theme and he's using it to foreshadow what, what's going to take place on a larger scale throughout Jesus' ministry, throughout the rest of his life. So in a way, that this story is preparing us for what's going to come as we read about the, the life, the ministry of Jesus. So, so as we look at this story today, it's helpful to know that Luke is going out of chronological order. But it's also helpful to remember that we need to read it thematically because of that. Luke put it where he did for a reason. We need to make sure that we're catching on to that. So, so now that we've got kind of that covered, uh, let's go ahead and work through it. This is uh, Luke chapter 4, and I'll start in verse 14. So again, this is immediately after the temptation of Jesus. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So at, at this point, Luke's still in chronological order. So the temptation has just finished. Luke, uh, Jesus has uh, returned. He's gone out. He's beginning his ministry. And, and it just, it's flowing out of what we talked about last week. At Jesus' baptism, we saw the, the Holy Spirit descend upon him. And at Jesus' temptation, we, we saw that he was led by, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And then here, Jesus' public ministry was beginning, and, and he was functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit, as Luke tells us. So in these first two verses, Jesus has returned from the wilderness to Galilee to begin his ministry. Galilee would, would be the, the general region in which Jesus' hometown of Nazareth lied, and, and his uh, kind of center of ministry, Capernaum. The, both of those towns were in the region of Galilee. They were about 40 miles apart from one another. If we think of kind of our geography here in this area, you know, to say that Jesus has come back to Galilee would be like saying that someone who grew up in Eureka and then left has come back to the Tri-County area, like that type of feel to it. So that's Galilee. That's the general region that, that Jesus is in. And it's at this point that Luke jumps ahead a bit, and, and he, he shares this story about Jesus coming back to his hometown, back to Nazareth where he grew up. And so verse 16 is where, this, where we see this. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day 
and he stood up to read. Now, it's been about a year of ministry. Jesus has been ministering in the region of Galilee, and, and his fame was spreading, which makes total sense when you, when you teach like Jesus did, when, when you perform miracles like Jesus did. Word's going to get out. He, there's going to be some notoriety that comes with that. So Jesus comes back to Nazareth. Now his visit to the synagogue in Nazareth was not one where he would have been able to come and just simply participate just like anybody else would have been at the synagogue that day. It, it would have been expected that a rabbi such as him, with a reputation such as his, that he would read the scripture text and that he would teach on that text. That, that would have been the expectation. And so, as was the custom at that time, Jesus stood up and he read a passage from the Old Testament. So look at verse 14, or excuse me, verse 17, chapter 4. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I, I really want us to try and picture ourselves in that synagogue on that day. Uh, now, now, there's there's debate about whether this uh, passage from Isaiah 61 was the scheduled reading for that day or, or whether Jesus, you know, on his own opened it up to that passage. We really don't know, but we do know that he read it. This is the passage that Jesus read. So I'm not sure that it really matters whether it was scheduled or not. Jesus read this, and then after reading it, he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, now, before we go any farther, we have to understand that, that this passage that Jesus read, th this is not an ordinary passage in the Old Testament. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that some Bible passages are more inspired than others. I'm not, I'm not saying that. All of the Bible is God-breathed. It's all given to us with a purpose. But, but for the sake of illustration this morning, let, let, let's imagine that I stand before you today returning as a guest pastor who grew up here at EBC. Let's say that I, I grew up here in this church body. After high school, I, I left town and, and through God's uh, mighty power in my life, I've been ministering in a way that's gotten people's attention um, through my teaching. And, and even, let's, let's say again, for the sake of illustrations, let's say I've been performing miracles as well in the power of God. Now imagine the kind of anticipation that would probably be present as I come back to EBC and stand here on a Sunday morning in the pulpit. I mean, just, just try and imagine what that might be like. There, there'd probably be a measure of expectation this morning, wouldn't there be? And now imagine, imagine that I come up here to this pulpit and I open my Bible, and I read these verses from Colossians chapter 4. I open my Bible, and I read this. I say, 
Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in our house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, suffice it to say that that's not a passage that biblical scholars are usually pouring over in great details. It's major doctrinal beliefs of the church don't come from those specific verses, right? It, it, it's not a passage that is, that is probably creating a lot of hope and anticipation for believers, right? Again, not that it's not inspired. It is, and it has its purpose, but it's a different kind of passage, isn't it? But now, imagine that same scenario. I've grown up here, I've left, and I've come back Imagine that I read these verses from Matthew chapter 24. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So imagine that I, I read that, and then I sat down my Bible, and I took in a breath, and I preached the exact same sermon that Jesus did in that synagogue in Nazareth. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, <laughs> hear that. Hear that as... They would have heard it then. Now, obviously, I'm not making that claim for Matthew 24. Me as Aaron, I'm not making that claim. I'm sure you know that, but simply trying to get us into the synagogue there in Nazareth so that we might hear Jesus' words like they would have heard them. I mean, th those words from Isaiah 61, they were filled with, with hope, right? They were they were filled with anticipation. There, there was all sort of interpretation surrounding that passage in Isaiah. Um, you know, some would have assumed that the statements in those verses were, were physical in nature, that, that physical captives would be set free, that physical blindness would be healed, and, and the physically oppressed would, have, would find liberty. And to be sure, those things were happening in the ministry of Jesus. They would have heard about those kinds of miracles taking place. Jesus healing the blind and casting out demons from those who were oppressed. I mean, imagine Jesus, they hear this about Jesus, and then he reads that passage and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, wow, that, that's crazy, right? I mean, I would imagine that would have been quite an exciting morning at the synagogue, don't you think? I mean, can you just picture the, the kind of the, 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 the murmuring back and forth that might have been going on? Like, did he just say that? Like, is he, is he really claiming this? Wow. I mean, perhaps the people could sense that something significant was taking place and, and was maybe even about to take place there. Because look at, I mean, look at what, uh, so in verse 20, he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, he sits down, the eyes of everyone are on him, and then that's when he says, today the scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And then verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, they were marveling at what was unfolding right before their eyes. They probably remember little Jesus running around with the other boys and girls after the synagogue potlucks, right? I mean, they, they, this, is, this is Jesus who's come back home. Man, but now he's all grown up and the Spirit of the Lord is on him in a powerful way and that's been on display through the incredible miracles that they've heard so much about. And now he's making this statement in their midst. I mean, I, I wonder if anyone there that day had any question about whether or not he was going to do some kind of miracle in their presence. I mean, he has to, right? This is Jesus we're talking about, and he just read this passage. He has to. This is his hometown. Surely he's got something good in store for us, right? Surely there's something special planned for his hometown synagogue, these people that he grew up with. Man. And I think Jesus is picking up on this vibe because look what he says then in verse 23. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. I mean, Jesus basically says, You guys are, you're, you're waiting for a miracle, aren't you? I mean, he could tell. Waiting for a miracle. I mean, and, and who wouldn't be? If I was in the synagogue that day, I, I think I would have been in that spot. Like, what's Jesus going to do? What kind of miraculous sign is he going to give to us? But when it comes down to it, that's probably the exact opposite attitude a person ought to have when coming to Jesus. The people weren't really concerned with accepting Jesus on his terms. They wanted to accept Jesus on their terms. They didn't want to yield themselves to Jesus. They wanted Jesus to yield himself to them. They had some expectations about what Jesus should do. Now that he's come back home, that he possesses this power of the Holy Spirit, they had a good idea of how Jesus ought to be acting. I would say they probably had a very specific idea of what the Messiah would do and to which captives he would proclaim liberty and to which blind he would he would heal, and in which oppressed he would set at liberty. I mean, they had a very specific interpretation of what the favor of the Lord would look like and upon whom that favor would come. Of course, those things would happen to the Jews, right? And of course, those things would happen to the Jews in Nazareth. I mean, we have this special connection with Jesus. He's our hometown boy. Surely, God's favor is going to be coming on us today, right? I mean, that, that would have been what was anticipated in the synagogue. Jesus may have grown up in Nazareth, but he was obedient to his heavenly father, not to the people in the synagogue that day. And what he went on to say, I imagine, completely changed the atmosphere in the room. I mean, listen to this, verse 24. He said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, 
And a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, we, we, we've probably heard that saying before, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Uh, I mean, th- that's kind of a saying within popular culture, even, not just, you know, not just within the church. But it's easy to miss in our English translation that there's a play on words taking place here. If you go back to verse 19, where it says, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that word favor in verse 19, and the word acceptable in verse 24, is the exact same Greek word. So Jesus has read from the text, and he's now saying a, he's just speaking himself, but using the same word that came from the text. And that the word, the Greek word there is dektos. Talks about acceptance and approval. So there's this incredible irony in the fact that Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, dektos. And yet, the people themselves were refusing to accept dektos, Jesus. Jesus was bringing God's acceptance to mankind, but the people in Nazareth were refusing to accept him. There's an incredible irony taking place there. It's kind of a slap in the face if you think about it, right? I mean, in a way, Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy through what he's saying. And and if that wasn't enough to change the atmosphere in the room that day, the two examples that Jesus gave from the lives of Elijah and Elisha surely did the trick. I mean, there's no question. And, and, and a little history here behind these two stories, I think, really helps us grasp the shock value. So for Elijah, Elijah was a prophet of God uh, during the time of the split kingdom of Israel. So you had northern Israel, you had southern Judah. Um, Elijah prophesied in, in the north, northern Israel. And his ministry as a prophet pretty much coincided exactly with the reign of King Ahab in northern Israel. And, and a firm argument can be made that King Ahab spiritually was the worst king in the history of God's people. You can easily make that argument. During Ahab's reign, in response to his wickedness, God sent a message through Elijah that it would not rain for the next few years except at Elijah's word. And, and it went on for three and a half years, as Jesus noted here. Now, that drought would have had devastating consequences upon King Ahab, specifically. But it's not like it, he was the only one that would have been affected by that drought. Uh, naturally, that drought would have been devastating for all the people of northern Israel as well. It was in response primarily to the king's wickedness, but it affected everybody. So in many ways, they were suffering for the sins of the king, at, at least in part. And in the midst of that drought, God told Elijah to travel northwest out of northern Israel to this town called Zarephath. It was outside the nation of Israel, and so as a result, it it was a town of Gentiles, not Jews. But even though it was not a Jewish town, the drought extended there as well. So they were suffering not even for the sins of their own king, but, but a different king. And so in that town, suffering from drought, there was a widow and there was a son. 
And this widow and son were impoverished from the drought. They were preparing to eat their final meal. And God sent Elijah to that widow to, to seek a meal. Elijah promised her that if she would provide him that meal, that God would abundantly meet the needs of her and her son. And she believed Elijah's words. She made him bread. And for the remainder of the drought, the oil in her jug and the flour in her container never ran out. I mean, that's a great story about the miraculous power of God, isn't it? I mean, this, this woman believed in the words of God. She sacrificed, and God abundantly and miraculously provided for the needs of her and her son. That's a great story. But we've got to hear it with Jewish ears. The drought encompassed all of Israel. There would have been impoverished Jewish widows all throughout Israel. But what happened? Where was Elijah sent? Elijah was sent to a Gentile widow and blessed her. Why not bless a Jewish widow instead? That, that would have been what was going through the mind of a Jewish person. Why go out of the nation? Why go out from God's people? That story probably never sat too well with the rabbis and with the Jewish people. And even more scandalous than that story of Elijah is the next one that Jesus references, the story of Elisha. So Elisha was the prophet in northern Israel who followed Elijah. During the time of Elisha, there was a nation to the northeast of Israel called uh, Aram or Syria. The name's interchangeable. And there were often skirmishes between Israel and Syria along the border of their territories. Some things, you know, see that nowadays, it was happening then too, skirmishes along the border. Naaman was the commander of the army of the Syrians, the enemy nation. Naaman was the commander, and he contracted leprosy, an incurable disease. There was not hope for people who contracted leprosy at that time. Now, there happened to be a Jewish girl who was the servant of Naaman's wife, She had been captured by a raiding party and taken into slavery, and she was serving in Naaman's household. And this Jewish girl knew about the prophet Elisha. And so she had heard about the power of God upon him. She told Naaman, this man Elisha in Israel, he can cure you. So Naaman, again, he's he's out of options. There's really no hope for him. He hitches his horses to his chariot, He travels into enemy territory, and he searches for the prophet Elisha, and he finds him. He went to his house, he went in, and Elisha gave him instructions to go wash in the Jordan River. At first, Naaman kind of doubted these strange instructions, but he eventually went, and he washed, and he was healed. Again, a great story of the miraculous power of God, healing this man of his leprosy. But again, We have to hear it with Jewish ears. An enemy of God's people, the commander of the enemy army, not just any old enemy, the commander of the army sought healing and was looked upon favorably by God. I mean, was there no one else in all Israel who suffered from leprosy that could have been healed? Of course there were. Of course there were people in Israel suffering from leprosy. Why would God heal a Syrian army commander? Another story that wouldn't have sat too well with the Jewish people. 
That's what Jesus brings up that day in the synagogue in Nazareth. And what's he saying? What's Jesus saying? He's saying, look guys, God's favor is not reserved only for the Jews. God's favor is not reserved for you just because I grew up here in this hometown of Nazareth. I'm going to proclaim God's favor on the Gentiles as well. I'm going to bring liberty to those who are outcast, those you don't consider worthy. That, that's what Jesus is saying that day. And it completely changed the atmosphere. Completely changed it. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Talk about a 180. They went from marveling at his words. Now they're filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. <laughs> what an ending. <laughs> In so many ways, what an ending to that story. The people were so upset that they drove Jesus from town and they intended to kill him. The prophet that came into the synagogue with great anticipation, they now want him dead. I mean, this message about God's favor being shown to the outcasts was so shocking and scandalous that they wanted to kill Jesus because he spoke it. That is incredible. And then you, verse 30, man, verse 30 is, I would just love to know, but passing through their midst, he went on their way. He, he went away. I mean, what happened there? It's like, you know, there this angry mob. He's, Jesus is outnumbered. They're going to throw him off the cliff, and Jesus just walked right through them. What happened there? How did Jesus just walk through their midst? I, I was looking at that, and all of a sudden, I, I, I'll be honest, I started laughing because there was irony in this. It's almost like Jesus miraculously escaped, but yet he didn't do it miraculously because that's what the people wanted was a miracle. Right? I, I don't know for sure that's what Luke's saying, but it, it always seems that way. Like, man, the very miracle they wanted to see, they didn't even get to see when they failed to kill him. Like, wow, that, that is incredible, what took place there. Uh, Jesus' inclusion of the outcast and Jesus' rejection by the Jews is going to be seen over and over and over and over again in Luke's gospel. This is why he tells this story here at the beginning. What happened in, in uh, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, we're going to see happen on a bigger and bigger scale. It's going to be the Jewish people in general that, that reject Jesus. The people in Nazareth refused to accept the work that Jesus wanted to do in their lives, and they refused to accept the work that Jesus wanted to do in the lives of of those that they didn't see as worthy. That was really the problem. Jesus didn't do for them what they wanted him to do. Jesus did for others what they didn't want him to do. That was the issue. The work of Jesus wasn't on their terms, and so they rejected him, and they rejected his work. And I think that's where the application comes for us today when we think about that. Am I accepting the work that Jesus wants to do in my own life? I mean, I definitely have an idea about how God 
should work and when he should do it and, and to what extent he should do it in my own life. And, and if he would just ask me what would be best for me, I would gladly tell him, right? There's probably a, a better chance that Jesus knows what work needs to be done in my own life. His wisdom far surpasses my own. So the question I have to ask myself is, am I going to accept Jesus on his terms and be open to the work that he wants to do within me? Or am I only going to accept Jesus on my own terms and, and only if he says and does the things that I want him to do? Because that's what we saw in Nazareth. The question is, how will I respond? So if, if I get frustrated, if I get upset with Jesus, odds are it's because I'm acting like the crowd in Nazareth. Jesus isn't doing what I want him to do, the way I want him to do it, and so the temptation is just to get angry and, and reject him, drive him away. And I can sit here and shake my head and point my fingers at the crowd in that story all I want, but uh, man, I, I'm, I can be just as tempted to respond in that same way. Am I willing to accept the work that Jesus himself wants to do in my life, even if it's not the work that I think he should do, the way he should do it? And then the other point of application surrounds the work of Jesus in the lives of others, what he wants to do in other people. Am I willing to accept that Jesus brings God's favor to those that I might think are unworthy? Right? Am I okay with, with God's favor being shown on them? Man, do I ever get upset when someone that I've written off finds favor with God? Or perhaps, maybe, maybe more convicting, do I ever feel justified when someone else remains separated from God's favor, that, that they're getting what they should get? Uh, man, if I, as a follower of Jesus, were to struggle with an illness, and, and that was the same illness as someone who has lived their life in rejection of God, how would I respond if that other person experienced God's healing power in that situation, but I didn't? How would I handle that? Because that's kind of what it's coming down to with, with the situation in Nazareth here. They, they couldn't accept that God's favor would be shown to the outcasts in their own midst or, or just in general to the Gentiles. They, they couldn't handle that. So do I have that same kind of struggle with any individual in my life or any group in my life? W would I rejoice to see God's favor shown to them? Or would I only rejoice if that favor is shown to me? And we see here in Nazareth, uh, there was not any rejoicing over, over the widow to whom Eli Elijah went, or to Naaman to whom Elisha went. They wanted the favor shown on themselves and themselves alone. So Jesus went back to his hometown went into the synagogue, was met with great anticipation, excitement, but by the end of that day, boy, things were different. He was, he was rejected. He didn't do what the people thought he should do. And so again, the question for us, what kind of reception is Jesus going to find in my heart? What kind of reception is he going to find in your heart? Will it be one that accepts him for who he is, or will it be one that wants to see him pushed off a cliff because he's not acting like I think he should act?
I think that's what we're presented with here in, in Luke's gospel. Would you stand with me? Let's come to God in prayer. Give praise to him that he does bring his favor. God, we come to you today, and I think this is a convicting story. See how Jesus was received, really the two different ways he was received by his hometown. And I think if every one of us were honest, we all have an idea about how you should act and how you should work and the way you should do it and the timing that you should do it. But the question is, are we willing to receive you and accept you as you are? Would you help me in that? Would you help all of us in that? We need to lay ourselves down at your feet, not expect you to bow at our feet. God, I, I pray that, that, that that attitude of humble acceptance of you would, would just impact everything. It would impact how I live my own life. It would impact how I worship you. It would impact how I treat those around me. I thank you that, that, as you said, you bring the year of the Lord's favor. I, I praise you that that is true. Whether we fully understand what that means or not, it is true. Would you help us to, to receive that and to understand that more and more? God, that, that is truly what we want to see happen in our world. That you bring favor and that you are you are received rather than rejected. So help us to start with ourselves. God, we give praise to you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your power. And we thank you for your patience as well. God, it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen.